Everyone's a fruit and a nutcase. It keeps you going when you toss the cane up. Whatever you are doing, punting, canoeing, is nutritious and nutritious to judiciously be chewing. Happy Sunday, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Museum of Comedy podcast. This week's guest, presented by the Museum of Comedy and Robert Ross, is Mr. Bill Oddy. Thank you. Yeah, thank so, you very, 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 very much for coming along. And unless he's just escaping Christmas shopping. In which case, I don't blame you. A couple of people said, oh, you know, you were. Yes, yeah. Well, it's dangerous near Oxford Street, isn't it? Yeah, hell, hell. So, so, so imagine, imagine we had the technology and we had a screen and a DVD player that worked. That would be great. Um, you would have seen an episode of The Goodies called Earthanasia, which was first broadcast on uh, December the 22nd, 1977. Um, and I was going to ask Bill about that particular episode, as it's nearly Christmas, that um, a, a, were you a bit miffed with the BBC because it's set at half eleven at night on Christmas Eve? Were you upset it wasn't actually shown at that time? as a first part of the question. And secondly, was it going to be the end of the goodies? Was that planned as the end of the goodies? No, I think the first question you've got to ask is, does anybody remember the goodies? <laughs> yeah, I want to. You see, I don't know anymore. I sincerely do not know anymore, because, uh, man, it's, a, it's an old situation or um, thing that happens to people who get to a certain age of myself and the career goes certain ways so on and so forth that people literally do come up to you and go ah don't tell me don't tell me you know and then i go the monkeys <laughs> no it's not the monkeys and then and, and the other one you get is hey did you used to be bill oddie <laughs> still am still am but it really is quite confusing because uh, for me, as much as other people, an awful lot of people know me, I guess, through, from, through the wildlife stuff now, which I've been doing for 10 years or more, and therefore I have not appeared in the comedy context for a long time. But I can, see, I can sense a certain amount of maturity in this audience, <laughs> which means they're old enough to remember the goodies. <laughs> well, apart from what I said, to drag you kicking the You're screen back You're into the goodies. Yeah. I, was, I was born the year the goodies started, so you, you shaped my childhood, Bill, really. Yeah, yeah, so it's all your fault. Sorry. <laughs> but, OK, so the Christmas episode, I mean, <clears throat> did, was that planned as the sort of the final of the final goodies? No, no, it wasn't meant to be a final one. I mean, God knows, I... I, I, I Somebody could contradict me right now, and I couldn't sort of contradict them because it was a hell of a long time ago, mm -hmm. as you say. 1977? God, hell. And um, I, I don't think it was. I mean, it's just obviously our take on a Christmas special because everybody does a Christmas special. And most comedy series, this, this consists of somebody going abroad for Christmas, doesn't it? There, I, I remember listening to some writer, I can't remember who it was, Goldman Simpson or somebody, some famous comedy writer, who said, you know when a series is actually running out of ideas, when they do a special, an hour special where somebody goes on holiday, usually to Spain or somewhere like that. Um, we obviously did not have budgets like that, and as I remember rightly, you'll have to tell me, um, the, we were just locked in the office the whole time, weren't we? Well, well the, the, the news comes on that at half eleven, drawn a carol service. Yes. You would have seen this, by the way, sorry, but by the DVD. Yeah. Um, um, basically, the, the newscaster uh, says that um, because all the governments have decided that the world's There's no point. In, in the shitter, basically, that we can't, we can't do anything about it. And when was this? 
1977. Nothing changes. And nothing changes. <laughs> 37 years on. Yeah. And they decide that we're going to blow the world up. Um, and yes, that's, that's and right. And have done yeah. with it. So it's Armageddon. And the last 25 minutes, the three of you decide what to do with your last 25 minutes. Real time. It's like high mm. noon, but with goodies. Um, I know, I can't reproduce it. I'm now remembering <laughs> it, you say. Sort of well, Where's Tim? I, I could yeah. do Tim. No, 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 it's not the same. <laughs> I, I remember it was con I remember the confession scene. Is that in that one? Because yeah. it did. I think we blew the world up at least three times. So there must have been in the series um, which went on for ten years. That's not bad, really. But every three years, you go shit. I can't think of anything else. Blow the world up. And this well, is what happened. Yeah. Centre as well. Of course we do. Yes. Well, exactly what they are doing. Yes. Yeah, we got around to it finally. Um, but. Uh, what was I saying? The, the festival <laughs> scene when, when um, you're playing... Yes, a lot of confessions, and, yeah. yes. That, actually, that was one of the most extraordinary things in it. If only you could see it. <laughs> I keep saying that. Yeah. It's going on behind that screen, that's the thing. They, just, they haven't got anybody to draw the curtains. <laughs> Somebody backstage loving it, yeah. Um, it's, um, I, I, I seem to remember Tim admitting that he never could stand my beard and my long hair and that sort of thing. And so during the show, as my last gesture to Tim, I shaved my beard. And I, you know, I didn't put on a false beard, a Jimmy Hill job or anything like that. I actually did shave my beard during the show. Inevitably, because some wacky person rushed in halfway through when I got half a beard and said, hold it, hold it, hold it, we've got to take a retake. You know, and stick it back on with it. No, that, but somebody had to do that. But no, genuinely, I, I, I shaved my beard and I also had um, virtually a bald head as well. That bit wasn't actually there but it was the week. Uh, but I remember coming out my my entrance as if to say, Here you are Tim, this is the way you've always wanted me to look and it didn't get any laugh at all. I'm not expecting one now because you can't <laughs> see anything. But you could if we had it. No, so it wasn't good enough. Um <laughs> but um it was extraordinary. Nobody knew who the fuck it was. I never believed. I, you know, it's honestly true. I said, "Why are they get a laugh?" And people in the audience afterwards said, "We didn't recognise you." So I won't do it to you tonight. I'll stay that way. And uh, and uh, I seem to remember there was. No, I, no, I don't seem to remember because I can't remember all the details of it. But, but the, the confessions. Period. But the, the good, the goodies at Christmas. I mean, you, you also did a, a couple of singles. Around, <laughs> around the Christmas theme, which we were talking about in the green room earlier. Um, yes, the, the, the one which I, I felt was a masterpiece and should have been a hit if it hadn't been banned. Um, <laughs> but you're looking at somebody who's had four singles banned over the years, and they always go on about these, you know, records of Banjou Tim and all that sort of thing. You know, we were far worse. And uh, and we we did a record called um, Father Christmas Do Not Touch Me. Now, Steady, please. No, no, seriously. But you remember, do you remember, you remember that song, which, which was always happened, you know, it's a rugby coach song, basically. And it's Oh Sir Jasper, right? So it's Oh Sir Jasper, we could have audience. <laughs> oh Sir Jasper, do not touch me. And, uh, da -da -da -da. and then you drop a couple of words every time you go through it. So it's Oh Sir Jasper, do not. 
<laughs> and then it gets down to, oh! <laughs> and it's good fun. You have a Christmas party and, you know, there's an age limit or something like that. You can still do it. But substitute, Father Christmas, do not touch me. And as Robert had just pointed out, if I remind the world in general that I did actually write that song, and I think at the end of it, it included lines, um, uh, I like little girls, but bigger ones are better. This was Santa Claus speaking. Um, <laughs> but I'm, if, I'm if, the most immoral Santa as well comes into Yeah, and if this, if this sort of got passed on, I think Operation New Tree would <laughs> drop everything and chase after me, really. Maybe all three of us. Who knows, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I actually, I was really sad about that because I thought that it's good fun. Unfortunately, it went down, down the back of, um, I think it was the in between is something, which was a, a silver record and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. In those days, you had to sell quite a lot. I know, absolutely. About three now, isn't it? <laughs> 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 but I, mean, I mean, people may forget that, that you know, uh, William. Edgar Oddy was, you know, one of the best-selling songwriters in 1975. I think it was 75, 76. It is is extraordinary. The Goodies was actually in one of those melody maker polls or something like that, you know, sort of within the top um, six or seven groups in the country. And I was, I think it was fourth best-selling songwriter. Thank God it's been downhill ever since. (laughs) But that, that, was, that was your entry into, into comedy, I suppose, was, was music, and that was the thing that... Um, it was really, because I had something, this, just being asked to do this, or you did ask me, didn't you? I did ask you, yeah, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't to do it. ring them, please, no, 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 please, no, no, please, no, I did please, ask. please, let me talk about myself for an hour. If I don't do that, I feel I'm one big, yes, I'll talk to myself. Um, but uh, it did make me sort of think back, how do you get into that? You know, because some people... I, I still come from a generation where quite a lot of the people I know in show business, for want of a better phrase, have um, sort of inherited it in a way, you know, that, that somebody in their family was also in show business. And, and, and people who are stand-ups now, and you find you get their CV and discover that their, their uncle was in the circus or something like that, you know, there was that thread there. Um, but in my case, there certainly wasn't. So I was thinking, where the hell did I ever get into that? And I honestly don't know. I really don't know any more than I know why I got into wildlife, because that was my hobby when I was, from being about eight or nine onwards, was bird, collecting birds' eggs, of course, and then, and then, and then um, into birds and eventually all wildlife. Um, but the comedy thing, I think, it just, I mean, the, the things that homed in on, on the radio, which is all we had at first, and, and on the early television, were nearly all comedy things, actually. Um, you know, and uh, on radio, it was perhaps not the ones you'd think. I used to, I used to claim that I could remember Itmar. And then I met somebody of about 95 who said, you couldn't remember it, Ma, that was before the war or something like that. I thought, oh, maybe, but I could have swore I remembered it. Ended in 1949, so you'd have been... Well, I could. I was eight, yes, I could, yeah. yeah. I know one thing. What? Bloody unfunny. <laughs> <laughs> I would say actually a diversion. I, BBC Radio, you may have heard this one, they, they had a programme where you were meant to be comedy cr- controller uh-huh. for the day. Yeah, yeah. 
And so they get somebody, myself in this case, somebody else to come in and choose a whole bunch of radio programs, you know, in the um, history of comedy. It was where repeats, 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 you know, they're always doing it. Um, <laughs> and I had to do this with radio comedy, so I'd give them a list of all the things I used to really love you know, when I was younger, you know. And there were things like Educating Archie, I'm sure people will remember that, the only ventriloquist on radio, and he was crap, and you can tell that even there. <laughs> you could hear his false teeth moving, I promise you. But, um, <laughs> but you, there was, was that, and there were various others, and I said, oh, I'm interested in it, Ma, because I think I can remember it. And there was things like Tommy Handley, and people well, that like that. Yeah, yeah. And was it? Oh, yes, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Ted Ray, mm -hmm. raise a laugh, you know, and that sort of And <coughs> I put the thing together, and I had to ring, ring up the, the, the producer of the programme and say, uh, there's one problem with this. I've got about seven or eight extracts from radio shows, and they're all awful. They are so unfunny. Early early radio is just dross now. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. I know that's sort of it's sacrilegious, and we mustn't mock it or anything like that. But one thing that's perfectly obvious, and if you've listened to these, Robert, as an aficionado of comedy history, um, you listen to the ones, especially just after the war, like that. And of course, all those people uh, in musical, they've all been in the theatre for ages and ages and ages. So they still project as if they're in the theatre, you know. Hello, hello, darling. What a nice day it is today. And it, it's everything to this terrible volume, you know. And, and the acting is so wooden. And it isn't until you get to the weird ones like the goons, or um, you know, take it from here was 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 waking it, it was up. The one, one called in all directions, which was Peter Eustonoff and Peter Jones, which was yeah. quite surrealistic and stuff. But I mean, I think you've been a bit unfair on it, Mark. It's that man again, because there are there's, there's some good stuff in some there. Some funny bits. And it, yeah, there are. Yeah, but I have. If there's years. one thing I've learned in my many years on Earth, it's that when somebody says it's really funny. Don't take any notice. <laughs> That's why Don't Jones take them for... I know it is. You've got me several times. Oh, you must listen to that. It's really funny. No, it isn't. <laughs> it's crap. <laughs> and that includes many of the things that I've done, too. I'll admit that. OK, anyway. But, uh, for example, in the, the last few years of it, Marv was Hattie Jakes, and she went on to work yeah, with well, Tony they, Hancock. So there's yes. a sort of bridge there. Yes, of course. Hancock. They got better, yeah, basically. Yeah, okay. They got rid of the people who have been brought up on the stage, and they got proper writers in and they got better yeah but so so when did you start first writing stuff or, or thinking about composing Ooh. music or writing well, at school yeah. at school and again the inspiration if you like or the challenge was again i talked about father christmas and being a rugby song and i unlikely though it may seem rugby was my main game. I played most things when I was actually school rugby captain, you know, so, hey. But nowadays, of course, you've seen the general trend of rugby players, I wouldn't get a game as the flag post, basically. <laughs> Possibly the ball, because I am far too tiny. No way. Nobody like my size has been seen on a rugby field for about 20 years now, and it's getting worse. Anyway, that's a rant. <laughs> um, you were good and what but did you play? What? what positions were you? you I um, I played fly half, okay. stand off as I sometimes called it, or a sudden five eighths or something as they call it now. And um, 
the thing is, we always we we played all over the the country, going to schools in a great big charabang, you know. So rugby outing in the coach was was fun, and it was suitably raucous, yeah. but it didn't go much beyond singing these flipping songs, you know. I can't remember them. Somebody here probably can. I'll tell your partner later, but not now. <laughs> but there, there's sort of um, you know Eskimo Nell and the like, and this sort of thing. Uh, so they 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 they're embarrassing. They're they're rude and so on and so forth. But the the thing is, there's only about six of them, and we'd go and match after match after match singing the same damn song. And this was honestly the challenge. And I said, I'm going to write some new words to those songs. And again, I sorry, I should be able to whip them out now. The songs I mean, Please. that was one of the lines. <laughs> <you know>. um, <laughs> and uh, and that's how it started. And they, they seemed to go down quite well. So we had a new repertoire, as it were. So if somebody else, you know, wasn't hadn't played in the team before, they had to learn the new lyrics first. Um, and that led me to start writing actual comedy songs because I think most songwriters probably comedy songwriters that is um their first their first attempt at it is always putting fresh words to something that already exists mm -hmm. you know so um i mean the two ronnies to be honest i mean that's much later on but that's a perfect example of it where you take a tune that you know and you change all the words around um or and you put new lyrics to Gilbert and Sullivan. I hear another song which was on um, Three Little Whatever Hell They Are, you know. <laughs> it's the same song. There's always, that was always, always, always being given new words in the comedy context. And, and, and it was one of my rather pompous little objections to say, I don't think that's proper writing. You're just putting new words to it. And started writing actual songs. And that was in the school review. Um, and I suppose I wrote about, I don't know, six, seven songs and the rest of the review as well. And that was just before I left secondary school. And at that point, I guess, the signs were there that maybe that was what I was going to do. So you weren't right up to writing sketches at that time? You just yes, no, I was as well. Too, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've always been a complete megalomaniac. <laughs> and it's, it's true, actually. The BBC have... Sussed it out, but it took them quite a long time. It took actually, 40 so, years, the yeah, well, it is really. I think, I think, as far as I know, this, this, this you heard here—it's not for Twitter or anything else. Or uh, the, um, in fact, the journalist from the Sun could just. You know, um, no, I, I think my demise from the BBC, um, from the wildlife programme, is about four years ago now, or something like that, was partially because I do have a megalomaniac streak in me. Mm. And unfortunately, I mean, I, it's, I didn't know then, but it, I sort of from a uh, basically bipolar nature. And when I'm up, it's not dangerous, but I imagine it's quite unpleasant because I get impatient with everything. Mm. And that's what was happening. And I, more than once I've been, I was put in a situation during the wildlife years, as it were, where there was a really nice cameraman friend of mine who came up and said, you know, there's a couple of the directors, you know, they don't really want to do the next series with you. And I said, why not? I'm quite happy. Well, I'm all right, aren't I? Because you, you don't believe it. And, um, and he said, well, it's just that they, you know, they don't feel they have anything to contribute, really, because you 
want to write, you want to, you do it. And I had lived all the wildlife stuff. And my answer at that stage was, look, I, I like those two people very much. Unfortunately, we didn't have no rare about it, didn't know anything. I said, if they can think of it as writing, think of me as the author, not the presenter, because all the wildlife stuff is never scripted, ever. I know we're not here to talk about that, but I started, so I'll finish it, as I say. <laughs> but it was always ad-libbed. And nevertheless, I've always maintained that that's writing. And if you'd presented them with 30 or 40 pages, you'd have every right to say to the BBC or anybody else, I think I should be paid something for this, this is a job, you know. But not if you ad-lib it. You can do, I'm sure Chris, Chris Packham has the same problem. You just, you know, we presenters who can go straight in, you're saving the broadcaster some money yeah. because you, there's no writing fee involved. Um, but I said the other thing, more importantly, is your relationship with the director. I said, think of it as an author. Think of me as the author. Think of it as a script. Now, if you were doing a play, you know, and you've got, uh, it's a Shakespeare play and it's got a history and Shakespeare's actually there. He's turned up and he's going to tell you what to do. You're not going to say, sorry, love, I'm the director, bugger off. <laughs> you know, you don't, and I'm probably suffering delusions of grandeur, but I don't think that eventually, you know, I don't think that aspect goes down very well. Most of the time it's just fine, but now and again it would uh, cause friction. Well, didn't the BBC, like, like a lot of, Corporations and institutions, you know, become a, a situation where everyone was terrified about losing their job, weren't oh, they? Totally. So, so if you're totally. a director, I need you to direct, please. That's yes. my job. So, you know, there was that sort of panic, wasn't there? Really? There's huge. There's been nothing but panic at the BBC over the last five, six more years, and I don't think yeah. it's it's a dying place in many ways. I really do think it is. Yeah. And well, going to make it a bit cheerful and that. Yeah, no, no, I'd rather not. But, but, but talk, <laughs> talking about about writing, and that's part of the reason why um, they they sort of phased out. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I read that again rather, and then became I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Which Graham sort of didn't really write, but they didn't pay any script fees. Did no, they? I so was it's... extremely angry with him. I had to. <laughs> it was Graham and I who've been writing together for years. Graham Gardner says. Um, for many, many years, and we'd, we'd done all sorts of things, you know, as well as the, all the goodies. We'd done uh, Doctor in the House, Doctor at Large, various things like that. Um, and we were a writing team, and the same with them. So we did again, we'd done ten years of those, you know, and that sort of thing. And um, it seemed like time to give it up, really. But then he came up with the idea of the the comedy quiz show. Was it's got a strap line like that? Sorry, I haven't a clue. Yes, but it's it's yeah. called something, isn't it? The oh, anecdote to panel games. Is it? Yes, yes something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> if only. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I said, what are you doing? You 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 handy. You've given them a reason to drop. I'm sorry, I'll read that again because they have to pay the writers, and now they're not having to pay anybody. You know, yeah. as far as I know, Graham not, never got anything, but it was his idea. Sure. But as you say, you can't charge people for making it up as you don't. Exactly, comedy. But you did the first series, didn't you? And you, and I you, think I might even yeah. have done two, but I certainly did one. Yeah, it's the. It is the only occasion. It wasn't live. You wouldn't dare. And I'm a classic example of why you wouldn't dare, because I, I remember during that first recording at some point just not being able to cut it, really. And, and I just, oh, fuck, I don't want to cut it. Ooh, sorry. You know, <laughs> out, get him out. Um, <laughs> and the funny thing is, I could do it now. 
Yeah. I thought about in the last few years I've had reason to do ad lib type things and and it doesn't bother me at all. It's, it's strange. Wouldn't that opportunity arise? They'd ask you back. No, okay. apparently not. Oh, do yeah. tell. <laughs> Anybody? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I don't know. They just hate me or something. I don't know. No, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm a little hurt, really. I would like to have pot put it back a couple of times, you know. But I mean, it's anybody, isn't it? You know, uh, Clive Anderson or yeah, like that, yeah. Or whatever. Joe Brand, you know, all good. <laughs> Everyone but you, really. Yes, more or less every comedian in the country. Well, and they probably probably says they look it up. You say they'll have a book at the BBC who looks it up and say, who, who, "What's his name? Oddle, Oddie, Oddie." Look at that. He's a wildlife presenter. Well, obviously, no, we can't have him, you know. So I'm probably down now. There's nothing to do with that sort of thing. All right, let, let me take you back to, to, to comedy. You know, I wish we had the film. Pro- pro- professionally, <laughs> yes, how do I? Professionally, I've got a drink then. Um, but, but I suppose uh, you went to Pembroke College at Cambridge. Uh, yeah, home English. of Peter Cook, that's yes. the, the comedy connections. Which but, 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 but was that a definite nothing. thing you went to in search of that? You know, uh, well, go to Pembroke College because Peter Cook would be there. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. no, no okay, I didn't okay. think so. Okay, okay. You don't write it down in your preference. <laughs> Why do you want to come here? Because Peter Cook's gone there. No, Cambridge no. Footlights and that was I that. Get anywhere. I don't yeah. know. I would have gone anywhere. Yeah, okay. I'd be perfectly happy going to Birmingham University up the road there or wherever, yeah. It's not my fault I went to Cambridge. I didn't want to go. <laughs> it's true, I didn't. That's my dad, you know. He's ambitions. I want my son to have the education that I never had. And I found myself taking exams for things. And fortunately, I, I got in. So I'm, it's one of the things, genuinely, I'm quite happy about because it must have pleased him. But it pleased him more than it pleased me, I tell you. So, especially during the first year because I can't say I liked it very much, you know. An awful lot of old Etonians and that. Nothing changes again, does it, really? So did you feel like an outsider then? Yes. Yeah, definitely. But we weren't alone. And I think, I think actually that's one of the things that got together our particular group of people during the Footlights era, era at that time, um, which was 1960, 61, 62, 63. And there were quite a few of us who weren't weren't on the face of it anyway, sort of people who went beagling and hunting and all that sort of I'm not making that up, just completely. That did go on, there's the beagling club. They have this thing, they have this thing uh, during your first couple of days when you're at, um, I imagine Oxford Cambridge, probably most universities, and people from the societies come round, knock on your door and say, hello, we're from the Christian Union, you know, and this sort of thing. We'd like you to join our club and you can don't think so, whatever. And eventually you, you get people from things like the Beagling Club, which were dogs, and I don't know what they did. I presume they <laughs> chased wildlife. You know, most of these things involve some sort of cruelty like that. Mm. Um, not that I'm prejudiced, but it's, um, there was quite a lot of that there. And uh, the footlights even, which was unique insofar as it was a comedy club it was doing sketches and stuff like that you know um but nevertheless it was scary so i think there were a few of us and i mean tim Buck taylor um was one who definitely i think felt a bit uncomfortable uh, graham garden also please definitely um although i have to say i mean tim for example went to winchester I mean, come on! He kept he kept it quiet as long as possible, you know. But um, no, we would. I would have said we were slightly sort of a 
you know, middle class schoolboys as it were, compared mm. with the toffs. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think that kept brought us together quite a bit. Mm. So I mean, the, the comedy wasn't so much satire, was it? It was it was just larking about and doing silly things in a funny way. Is that okay. right? Well, you said, no, I'm hesitating, only because uh, actually some of it was satire. I mean, my, my first, my first thing is, I mean, writing those songs at school, a lot of them were like a sort of end-of-term thing you have if you happen to work in a hospital or something like that. And hospital end-of-term reviews are great, by the way. They produce us. I remember seeing, you know, Rob Buckman, um, Graham Chapman, several ex-doctors. They always have a great show because their life is so tough, I think, that they have to loose it on comedy. You know, there's quite a, th there's a thesis for you there. Mm -hmm. A book. <laughs> Have it out by tomorrow. And it's... Um... Can be done. Can <laughs> I know it can, yeah. <laughs> uh... <laughs> but, um... Oh, I lose my thread completely again. About, anyway. about you doing satire? Uh, yes, that's right. But when I wrote the... And when I wrote the, the show at school, definitely a lot of the songs were, in a sense, satirical, because they were actually about real things that were happening. You know, we'd had... Uh, uh, headmaster had gone on a trip to America. We never quite know why, but it was all around the school. And it, I, I don't know, you know. But there was some. What's he going to do? He's gone off to America, and um, that in itself wasn't funny or anything. But it was. It was like the workers' playtime syndrome, you know. So you do things to the people in the audience. Uh, and once I got to 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 Cambridge, I did find myself writing things. About things that were happening then, and the first job that I ever actually sold anything was a song which was about Adam Faith. Um, people were going, Yes, remember him? Well, do you want if you don't want money? It's like Bruce Forsyth. Well, do you want if you know, baby? No, that's somebody else. Uh, <laughs> that's wish you weren't in my love, baby. And then he goes, oh, in the middle of it. <clears throat> I enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> such no, no, it deserves nothing. It got nothing. Um, but uh, he, um, he, he'd had a meeting with the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm blowed if I know why. But like such things, you know, uh, it was a bit like... I don't know, John Lennon or somebody going to see the Pope. It was sort of, um, and, and this was in all the papers. How Adam went to see the Archbishop of Canterbury to discuss what it was as young people. It was probably that. It's probably the Archbishop saying, "I need to know what young people are doing these days." You know, can you find me a pop star? And somebody had brought him to one. Um, and uh, I wrote a song about that, which was pretty harmless. It was. It wasn't heavy satire, but it did refer to that. Um, I seem to remember, God, this is taxing my memory. Um, there's faith and hope and charity, and the greatest of these is faith. Fitting out, it was quite humorous with music on it. And, um, uh, and that got bought by, by somebody from the BBC. They sent scouts down, as it were. Yeah. Uh, that got bought and was on, that was the week that was, mm -hmm. which was very, very, very much a satire show, a live satire show, um, extraordinary programme. I mean, it's one of those programmes, undoubtedly, people are, I'm sure most people are aware of it here, if you didn't actually remember seeing it, something like that, but I mean, a live show every week 
where it could go on, it was open-ended, that was the amazing thing. If there wasn't much happening, you know, it'd be an hour. But if it's a busy week, they just go on to, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, you know. These days, they never stop. They just go on and on and on. But, you know, it was very political a lot of the time. Bit of silliness, but, but mainly pretty political. And my very, very first job when I came to London, was as a contract writer, as they put it, for that was the week that was. I was paid to produce five minutes material each week, so, you know. But you wouldn't perform that, you'd just write the songs? Or would you I didn't that? perform, I, I was on it about twice, mm. and then there was another version called BBC Three, a, few, a couple of years later, uh, and I was on that for about three months, and did about ten years, ten episodes of it that yeah, yeah. the work the, this this is terrible thing to it's, it fades into insignificance in the context but the thing i most remember about the that was the week phase was um i was going out with the lady who i eventually became my first wife but we we, we were going to have a break and it was in november and I was in the habit of going to strange places wherever I went, really, for birdie reasons and scenic reasons. And we went to Shetland in November, thus putting ourselves completely out of touch and contact with the rest of the world. And during that time, Kennedy was shot. And the program commemorating as it were Kennedy but done that night mm -hmm. ad-libbed etc and people writing like mad um, went on to be in some ways you know one of the most iconic programs of that era mm -hmm. and um, and I was in Shetland looking at puffins or something. <laughs> we had a nice time but uh, but no it's a terribly churlish thing to say said, like the president's been shot, and you're worried you weren't on the program to write a, to write a song about it. But, uh, but it, was, it was a serious, it wasn't a, it was a skit song, was it? it was the, that whole thing was a very serious. Oh, it was a serious program. Celebration. Of yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah uh, sure, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't yeah, have written yeah. a Gilbert Sullivan no, song quite. about it. No, George Formby version or something like. Hey, the president's been <laughs> shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also, the BBC were very scared of it because I mean, they they pulled the show because the next yeah. year was a general election, wasn't it? Sixty four. So that's why it was cancelled. Yes. Well, nothing changes. I don't think. There, I mean. Uh... <laughs> so, but but then after that, you you did the the, the Cambridge Footlights show was called a clump of a clump of plinths, which is hard to say. God knows one. Actually, I actually there was a physical one. There's one. Here's a, here's a rule in comedy and probably anything that might have a title. Books are the same problem. You know, you can you can write it, you can perform it, no problem. We we'll do that. You know get that out of the way, take maybe only a week or something if you're writing a programme. But if it's a new series, actually coming up with the title of the show of the series probably takes far longer than actually writing it. And we, used to, we had the terrible sessions um, with Cleese, who was particularly, it won't surprise you to know, prone to coming up with the most stupid titles of the lot, you know, and why don't we call it mouse tickling time or something, you know. And these all, I've been told by the Python lads, um, all of these stupid titles came up when they were trying to do it as well. But whoever came up with a clump of plinths was, I don't know who it was, but it actually described the, the set 
because mm. we had a very minimal set, you know, and uh, and they were just big boxes really, which could be rearranged and had to um, pretend to be a court scene for one thing and a bunker for another, whatever. And somebody said it was like a clump of plinths, and that's what it became. And it's the worst title has ever been. <laughs> Part of a monkey python's flight. That's rubbish. Yeah, um, but uh, but but the cloth of plumes, the actual the mm. actual sketches and the songs mm. that were so popular, you took that to Edinburgh that year. And uh, no, well, I did. Well, that somebody did. But, not, but, not, but your work went. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I've never done Edinburgh, but we put a second team in because our first team, as it were, <clears> um, certainly uh, Chapman, Cleese, Timber Taylor, uh, myself and a couple of others, David Hatch, I can't remember exactly, but that we came to London. We actually we did a couple of little Tory type things, and then we ended up on, on the Lyric in Shaftesbury Avenue, not the one at uh, Hammersmith. Um, meanwhile, up in Edinburgh, um, a second team with, you know, sort of... Uh, second-rate performers, really. I suppose you have to put it like that, like Eric Idle and, <laughs> and Graham Garden and one or two others, um, went up to Edinburgh. So I, I've always thought, oh, what a shame. I would love to have done that. It's much better than being in the West End. Because then the show changed to Cambridge Circus because you were in Cambridge Yes, Cambridge yeah, because yeah, it was near yeah. Cambridge. Yeah. So it should yeah. really have been Shaftesbury. No, it should, yeah, so, it, should, so do you think, it should have been Shaftesbury Avenue. Do you think you inspired the title Monty Python's Flying Circus then from that? Was that, was that John and Graham? I'm thinking that was a good We can word do better than that. Well, just the word circus, you know, just to keep that oh, going on. No, 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 no. I don't think logic ever came into okay. these things. No, God knows. What That's my historian know. job. No, no, no. You should know up. that. It must be some yeah. book or other. Yeah, probably, John, yeah. John Cleese has just written another book about it. How we named Python. Well, that'd be out now. <laughs> but, that, but you did go to <coughs> America with the show mm -hmm. and New Zealand. So um, yeah. was that good for your bird watching? It was, as it happens. Yes, That's yes. one of the lovely continuities, you know. I mean, it's um, it's been a lifesaver in some some ways. But the main thing is, and this particularly was true when we went we, when we went, got into things like the goodies year after year. You know, that was my life for mm. ten, eleven years or something like that. But whenever there was any breaks, even when we were doing those things. You know, people say, well, we're going to meet up the pub later or something like that, and it's still light. And I say, well, I, I'm, I'm off out. And, I'm, and yeah, it really, it really was um, uh, a sanity maker, in a sense, you know, to have something to get away from. Yeah. But you said you more, you're more composer, more writer. <coughs> Did you enjoy the performance, though? You're, you're in America <laughs> doing, you know, the stuff you've written. It must be quite exciting. You were 20 years old or 21 years old. Yes! Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. No, I, I realise this. There's a there's a, a sort of sin, you know more serious sort of undercurrent with this in a way, because as I said, uh, I've been diagnosed about four or five years ago as being of uh, basically bipolar nature, um, and for the last the ten years before that, it was as depressive. Um, so I had various periods of depression, um, varying lengths and so on and so forth. But eventually, and uh, without going into a mental health diatribe, you know, it's, it was diagnosed as the bipolar thing, and it made more sense to me when I started thinking that way. But the thing that really made me think of was, has this been there all the time? And so it made me look back at my life and various instances in my life 
And there were quite a lot where I thought, oh, bloody hell. Because it's easy to know when you're depressed. You know, it's just fucking awful. It's just the worst. But you know you got it. But with the manic part of it, you know, it's not always obvious. And a lot of the time it's it's very productive or even enjoyable or something like that. And so therefore can be turned to something enjoyable and good, you know. Uh, but when I look back, I could see instances where I thought, wow, I was out of control there. And I was always puzzled when I was ahead of somewhere, I can't remember exactly where, had come up to me and said something like, you know, a lot of people we work with are a bit scared of you. And I'm going, what? And yeah, you are, you're quite intimidating. And I said, what? You know, I'm only little and I don't, you know, and I really didn't recognise it. I didn't accept it, didn't realise it. And the reason for this ramble is that I, I, I think in a way there is a basic, and it's not uncommon, obviously, there's lots of people, not just show business, I've got to say, who have this problem, but... Um, there's a, an extrovert bit which goes quite a long way. And when it's being harnessed, that's fine, you know. So to go back to your question of what did I enjoy the performances, that was part of my manic bit because even I couldn't understand how somebody who is very unsociable and quiet off stage would be an absolute bloody maniac when I got on stage. And this, this was true. Tim and Graham were, were scared of me. Because if, if there was something in the script which says, Bill gets cross, <laughs> and I just got like this, and I'd end up smashing the set up or something. You know? You'd have written a sketch, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah So course. there you go. So yeah. Bill gets very cross. Yes, Bill gets very cross. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, but, but from the performance, there's nothing like that. Listen, we were on Broadway in 1964, it's Cambridge Circus team with John Cleese, um, Graham Chapman, Tim, myself, and uh, a couple of others. It changed slightly, but uh, we were literally on Broadway. And I, to this day, I think it was like the producers, you know, the movie The Producers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I really do, because the guy who put us on, we had a, an English impresario, um, Michael White, who put all sorts of famous things on after us, he went oh Calcutta and hair and all sorts of stuff, and he was a great guy. But he, he, we had to have an American producer, and he was called Saul Hurok, and Saul Hurok normally um, presented things like um, the Russian ballet and so on and so forth. And I swear to God when he said, well, Cambridge Circus, that's good. We haven't had a circus in town for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and when he turned, he only turned up once, when he saw him once. And I could almost sense him going, where's the elephants? <laughs> I don't understand. What's this? They're not clowns, you know. And, 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 and unless it was, his, his accountant had said, no, perfect soul, just what we want. This will die the death. You know, these English students coming over here, it'll die the death. That's the tax loss we want. And the irony, it was springtime with Hitler, for God's sake. You know, it was huge success. <laughs> we were getting great reviews. We were on, on the um, 
the uh, Ed Sullivan show and that sort of thing. You know, it's about the time of the Beatles and the animals and people like that. Yeah. I could look a bit like Eric Burden at a distance <laughs> and without the beard. So uh, I remember appearing at a window and all the animals groupies down there. Oh, Eric, Eric! Oh, I like this. <laughs> Some more of this. And, um, uh, but but the, we'd been on for two or three weeks and we were not getting the audiences. And then we went into ticket places. They said, no, we don't have any record of that. So there was something going on. They were trying to kill us off, despite these great... As it turned out, it was, it was fine, because we moved into Greenwich Village in 1964-65 with just about, you know, comedians, jazz players, God knows who, Joni Mitchell, old Bob Dylan in the cafe down the road, you know. I mean, it was, it was a pretty good place to be at that time, so it didn't matter. But... Imagine being on Broadway, and the first few nights when you know full of audience, and looking around and saying, "Right, you know," and having to sing rock and roll songs, which most of mine were rock and roll parodies. And uh, believe it or not, I was featured on the cover of American Dance Magazine. Okay. Yes, the cover of American Dance Magazine, because, you know, they weren't claiming that I was actually a dancer, but as a mover or something like that. And I deserve up there with Mickey Rooney or somebody like that. Was well, I was going to say, you've got reviews saying you're the new Mickey Rooney. And something uh, like that, yeah. It's got a small. And, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but they mentioned Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and the great physical clowns, weren't they, were being discussed yeah. with your name in the same line. Um, yeah, but uh, they lie a lot. It's ridiculous. But, um, but no, I, I love physical performing is the, is the answer to it, you know. And we have to watch the Goodies Wild thing, for example, and you can see I'm kind of having it. You can see they're having a good time. It's see, like... Tim and Graham have always, they're very sweet about this because they, you know, they... People have interviewed them, as I'm sure you have, and they sort of say, well, how, how did you two feel about um, about Bill doing all these songs, you know, and singing the lead vocals and that? And they said, and Tim in particular, <laughs> said, you know, he said, hey, listen, it's the middle of the 70s. We're on top of the pops nearly every week with Pan's people. And so, <laughs> you know, we're very grateful to him. <laughs> so, and I was grateful to, I was glad to be able to add a little something to their lives. <laughs> but not too much. And if there's any policemen in, we didn't do it. No, no. It's like walking through those doors at the minute. Yeah, like no, taking you cool. We were there, though. Yeah, when when, there, all, yeah, that, when all that stuff happened, um, the, you know, the, the stuff in the papers, I suppose, is a couple of years now, isn't it? Well, with, the, with, the goodies were of the 70s, that's the thing, isn't it? We were totally of the 70s. Yeah. And every yeah. time I did a, an interview or anything like that, I went to Cambridge Union, you know, you've you got to go to Cambridge Union and talk to students. In fact, all they wanted to know was, did you know Jimmy Savile? <laughs> you know, that was the main thing. Did you know Jimmy Savile? Moving swiftly on. Secret. But, um, but, but, <laughs> I imagine the New York experience of, of being uh, mistaken for Eric Burden and, and the whole animal was sort of like a thing and the kinks were going on and the Beatles, etc. Mm. Did that inspire you to sit down and write a load of good rock and roll songs then? Did they, I could do a rock band or a rock star thing, you know? That wasn't Never did no. it seriously. No. Other people tried to push me in that direction. I think I had an agent at that time, I think, who felt, you know, oh, you should do it seriously. You know, and I, I know what I mean. It's standard. And everybody knows comedy songs, Once in a Blue Moon, you know, a novelty song or whatever yeah, would get yeah. in there. But, you know, it was a challenge and, and we had 
I don't know, five top 20 records. And but without being, I mean, because you, you've got a great rock voice, Bill. You really have. And, and I you used could, to have. No, well, yeah, you used to have. No, it's but, all but, gone but, now. But being, being British in America in 1966 <laughs> and having a rock yeah, voice, you could have yeah. been, you know. I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? I got a chance to sing. I just, I, you know, I used to like singing. What? <laughs> Another Peter Noon, I'm thinking. Oh, I thought it was Keith Moon no, for a moment. Um, <laughs> what's that? Herman's herpit. Herpit. <laughs> what are herpits? Herpit. <laughs> but you did, you did uh, uh, cousin Kevin on the the the, the Tommy. Yeah, show. that was you great. No, I can't pretend that you know a, a, a chunk of me. I was I was always and always have been and probably always will be accused of being a sort of frustrated rock star or something like that. People have already said that uh, lots of times, and I said no, I wasn't frustrated because I. <laughs> Actually, did quite a lot of you know. I mean, the actual singing and being on shows and things like that. And um, yeah, that was a stage presentation of of Tommy. And uh, I know Roger Daltrey did. They didn't all do it. Keith Moon didn't do that. Um, but and I was standing next to David Essex through most of it. Um, and I was, uh, we, we were sharing a mic at the end. It said, there's a big song at the end, listening to you, whatever it is. And, um, and David and I, he's so familiar, but, uh, David and I, it seemed to be the only two who actually knew the words. <laughs> we decided this was because we both had a bit of a thespian background, you know, we're used to learning words. Um, as opposed to, for example, Viv Stansel, bless him, who just came on stage, obviously pissed out of his head, um, whipped out an enormous sort of fluffy false phallus and swung it around like this and managed about two words of the song. He was in fiddling, 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 you know, and eventually it was sort of giving the hook and pulling off, whereas me and David working away, we know the words, we know that. <laughs> But that, you know, of course, yeah. I'm glad you reminded me of that, because it's good fun. <laughs> but I say, talking about the, the, the rock star, we both did a show a few years ago called um, Top Ten Comedy Records. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, I, yeah. And my quote is that Bilotti is not a frustrated rock star, he's a rock star. Because <laughs> you, you were. Because yes, you well. were bloody good. If you, if, you were, if you had to get those clips off Top of the Pops now, if you cut the hosts out, which is a, a thing they <laughs> oh, do on... I our, think they would cut most of them out, <laughs> don't they? Yes. Is that what they do now? Well, they can't show certain episodes now because of the hosts, you see. They, they, no, uh, but do they cut yeah. the hosts? Out, no, no, just, they, they cut the whole show now. Oh, God. So, um, and they put an animated version <laughs> up or something like that. Just a oh, black screen. Black with, yeah, with it's music. Yeah, it's quite BBC4 is now radio. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, but, but the ones that they do show, I mean, some of the, for example, the, the classics, the Funky Gibbon, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Now, where, where did that come from? Where, how was it a dream God. somewhere? <laughs> some evil devil which descends upon me some nuts. There, there, there's always a rationality. It's pathetic. I'm just going to convince myself for some reason. But the rationality of the time was good. I was a big fan of funk music and, you know, Cool and the Gang and that sort of thing. And, uh, um, and the only objection was, it's great, but, you know, it, it's, the lyrics are just awful. I mean, let's face it, it's mainly sort of, I want to get you tonight, baby, everything's going to be all right, baby. You know, and it's all like, there's nothing more to it than it just goes on and on. Let's get down and dance, dance, and they're going to rhyme it with chance, don't, yes, and they do. And it's, I, it's if, you know, you think, for God's sake. So logically enough, I came up with a funky gibbon, yeah. Um, with the lyric, ooh, ooh, ooh. 
<laughs> which beats, <laughs> which definitely beats. I'm gonna get down, lady. But um, it, that was it. Seriously, was a motivation. It was saying, let's do something silly. And it was the record company didn't want it at all. They really got upset, you know, because their first record was was like Slade or something. And uh, and they, they thought, and we said, now can we do what we really want to do? Because I wrote that one in between this to their instructions in the sense that we said, you know, they want something really commercial, and it, it worked. You know, it was a, a hit at Christmas. But the actual show, the goodies, was had some amazing session players on the oh, music. Because yeah. I mean, because when, yeah. when you when you do the the, the, the what called silent stuff, the slapstick stuff. Mm. The, the music in the background, which you compose, is, is fantastic. Mm. Well, I take it back. I did the songs, yeah. and then the way we did that, I mean, it's very interesting, um, was we got, for things have changed so much. For a kickoff, we had a live band. Mm. It's usually, it might be five, you know, minimum four or five, sometimes a couple of extras or something. I want trumpeters, and we could get them. Um, we recorded for two or three days before we started. The only thing we couldn't do was actually fit the music to the action as you would in a movie. Yeah. You know, where you're given the action, you look at the pictures and say, okay, I'm going to score something here, something there, you know, etc., etc. So it was an odd thing to do, but it was engineered entirely by me thinking, oh, this is great, you know, I'll have a chance to play around the studio. Um, so I would write lots, I'd write two or three songs usually for each show, and there'd be a vocal on it, and then I'd, you'd kind of turn it over to the band and say, look, we don't know how long of this we're going to use, so take solos and stuff. And then I'll take another vocal, then you take a solo. And the result is there are these sort of bootleg CDs, which at least three people in the world seem to be interested in. I'm very happy one of them sent <coughs> sent it to me not too long ago, um, an ex-BBC Sandman, and they are unedited, um, you know, uh, sessions from two or three shows during the 70s or something like that, yeah. mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. And I must admit, there's some great playing on there because there were some very, very good musicians, yeah. That's true. Can we get the, the Goodies Anthology CDs? That's a good way of thinking. Well, you can talk about that after. <laughs> that's, um, that's, no, I mean, that's great because, I mean, the music was... And also, you, you did work um, with John Peel on the Dandelion Records ah, label yes. and stuff. So yes. you, you've got real muso clout, really, <laughs> and cool. Uh, yeah, John, John didn't really know which way to turn, I don't think, because... In what way? Well, because um, originally, I think, you know, he regarded us as being acceptably sort of off the wall and a bit hip and that sort of thing. Mm. And then I... He heard, heard a track I did when I did this Joe Cocker version of... Orkley Mob Bar Tap and he heard that and said oh I really want to record that I'm not going to even attempt John Pillow yes. um, and so we went and recorded that and then we ad-libbed a silly version of Harry Krishna on the backside and the musicians on that one Jesus I go in you know this is whatever it is mid 70s early 70s um, Mitch Mitchell on drums ended up with Hendrix experience um, Rick Wakeman on piano, still going strong. John Paul Jones, you know, and we got uh, and Sue and Sonny from the Grease Band, who Joe Cocker's band. Right, it was an incredible band, 
And uh, so that was great. That's all because of John Peel, you know. So I just ring your friends around and uh, along the cards. And and we did that, and it didn't really get anywhere, but it became a bit of a sort of a, a cult record or something like that. But then, um, I think because we became more and more successful, that never suited John very much. And... Um, so we got slagged off the next record we made, you know, because it was usual rubbish, you know. It was, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, there was a, one of those apocryphal stories going round, still is, I still get occasionally, did the goodies beat up John Peel in a nightclub? <laughs> I hope nobody's here who said that one. Um, and the answer is no, we didn't. We didn't. We didn't. We absolutely did not. But it's amazing how these things get well, out. Well, John Pill put that story out, didn't he? He, he probably did. Yeah, did yes. I'm sure he did. But, but so that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. Oh, and you want a bit of street cred? Yeah, blow his street cred. Okay. God rest him, John. I'm going to tell him that. Um, <laughs> because we, one of the few times we found ourselves at the same desk, we were judging the beauty queen at a university somewhere in north of London. You know, yeah. well, you don't do that, do you? You don't do that. I mean, I could, but he shouldn't have been doing it. No. But he did. Yeah, but right. he did. Uh, but the one, the one story that is sort of legendary is that the, some guy did die laughing watching the goodies. Yeah, that's, that's true, true, wasn't it? That's absolutely yeah, true. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, the great thing is we. So know, it's, well, we didn't show the episodes. It's too dangerous. Yes, I know we did. Yes, the only comedy show with a, a sticker on a warning. Um, yeah, we know exactly when it was too. But it, we got. It was extraordinary it, circumstances because we've been recording. Um, at the studio um, for the next show or whatever. And somebody, um, the floor manager, came up to us and said, we just had this letter, this phone call and all letters, one or two, and uh, apparently there's this lady who's got in church to say she would like to thank you for killing her husband. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, you know, he, he was so happy when he went. And... It became, yeah, it's true, you know. Yeah. There aren't too many shows can claim that, are there? But apparently he, he it's, they, they still try and diss it. Last year, in some bloody paper somewhere, they were still trying to undermine yeah, it, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Somebody, you know, it's like they've sort of had a very, very late autopsy and some of the people have been brought in, exhumed that man, let's have a look, wait a minute. He's, oh, he had a condition. I, I've, got, I've got to say, I'm sure, I don't think the letter said she's glad you killed her husband, but I think she no. said that she was glad he died happy. Of course. That was the point. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Thank God he's dead. No, I'm not <laughs> saying they were. I'm not going to say. I'm not saying she was bringing a case against us, for Christ's sake. You're <laughs> getting Gillian Anderson to come and sort it out. What the hell was that voice she was doing? Anyway, that's not the same thing. Um, oh, the four you were doing. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Mm. Listen, I mean, I, I, if we're still talking next year, Bill, we should do another one of these because no. I'm running out of time. I know this could be it tonight. This could be my career finished. Um, Why? But, um, You've done nothing wrong. <laughs> This, uh, this, uh, it so reminds me. Um, no, this is not a, not a sort of whinge or anything like that. But I, over the years, I've, I've done a lot of um, a lot of talks, if you like. You know, this is on the the bird front, and particularly, I don't know, fifteen years ago or something like that. You were always at the mercy of the venue, as it were, um, because I was showing slides, and it, many of the places. <laughs> 
I would turn up to do a show, you know, I got soon got used to actually bring your own projector. Whatever you do, bring your own projector. Um, because the number of times, I remember one in particular I was having Robert Day, um, they, they brought this slide projector out and they put it on a table and I put all my slides in and I said, I better just check them. I just pressed the button and they shot out all of the audience people catching them. With this. Uh, so that one went and he said, we're going, we're going to find another one. We're going to find another one. Went down the high street. Now the shop's closed. Okay. Um, wait a minute. I think so and says it. I've got one at home. And he comes back later and he's got, he's got, it was an antique. It was this ancient sort of plastic projector from many years ago. And uh, I think it was. It was up in the attic, you know. I was lucky it was there. And then we realised that it wasn't at the right height. You know, if you imagine the screen's there and the projector was down here and it didn't tilt and it wouldn't hit the screen. So we had to start building a tower. And we, we ended up with a table, another table... Another stool, um, about half a dozen directories on top of that, and the projector on top of that. And that was now at the right height to do it. The only problem was, it didn't have a remote control or anything like that. I was going to have to change the slides. So I'm going to actually change the flipping slides. Anyway, it could have been worse, you see, so it could have been that. Well, I was, I was, I was gonna, as we're getting up to the hour point here, I was going to throw it to the audience for any questions out there, but I haven't got any. Right in the back there. Yeah. Yes. Um, we're all from Australia here. Great! Right. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Kept it going for years. Thank you. Yeah, what a wise decision. of Australian kids who grew up on the goodies, and yeah. we love you. Bless you. Is that all you've come to say? Uh, no, I have it's a question. All good. <laughs> <laughs> but make sure you say that again. <laughs> Well, I mean, as with so many comic comic things, um, it's actually much more controlled than you think. I think nearly everything that looks as though it's mayhem, um, if it works, it means it's actually been worked out and rehearsed, you know. and so certainly that was true once we got into actually rehearsing the show or recording the show. Then there was a lot, a lot of rehearsal and stuff going on. But the actual ideas, even they came from what we used to call our panorama list. And at the beginning of the series, you know, we've got seven or eight shows to do. So all three of us get together, which is an unusual occasion. And... Um, and we'd make out the panorama list, which was basically a list of subjects which could have been in panorama or a serious documentary thing, you know. So we put this great list thing down there. And then on the other side, we put down sort of atmospheres or areas or geography things that we haven't done, including, I might say, Australia. We definitely had Australia down, and it was duly featured, but the budget didn't run, run to anything further than a park in Ealing, if I remember right. <laughs> it was amazing how like Australia it looks here. I've been to Melbourne since and thought, this is just like Birmingham. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, a good example is we then put these two things together. A good example, I think, is the best one, is... We got um, we got martial arts 
was one of the relatively serious things. We we never done so the martial art type things. It was very fashionable in the seventies, um, particularly kung fu and all that sort of thing. And then we also thought we ne- all three of us are actually or- originate up north, and we thought we'd never done the the north country bit. You know, that's why we get so cross when we see the three Yorkshiremen. But I mean. On the other hand, there's been several million Yorkshiremen. <laughs> well, it's Sue Monty Python, three Yorkshiremen. We had lots of Yorkshiremen before that. But we had those similar voices and that sort of thing. And then we put those two together. You know, so we said, OK, North Country, martial arts. And a lot of the programmes were done that way, you know. But the style of them, I, I don't know where the styles come from. You, we just knew that we wanted to do something very visual. Um... We didn't want it to be satirical in the obvious sense, but at the same time we did want to have a go at various institutions and authority and that sort of thing, which is often played down, I think. People don't remember that. I was going to say, that, that, that one was Ecky Thump, and that was the one that killed the guy in Scotland. Yes, so the, moment, the, moment, <laughs> yeah. the moment I was... I did... I didn't want to risk actually saying it, Robert. OK, you know, sorry, you know. I was like... I was having hard tremors as we speak in the audience. <laughs> I don't know, he's just talking about it, he's killed another one. Is that an adequate answer? Oh, I'm just really interested to hear your take on it. I also wanted to say my first uh, crush was on Graham Garden. Mm-hmm. He was the first geek I was ever exposed to. Well, you know, somebody who will be really pleased to hear that is Graham Garden. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. <laughs> That's lovely. I'm very pleased. He needs, like we all do, all the love he can get. Would you like to come and visit Australia? Well, he has. We've all done it. I mean, we all three of us went for one thing, and uh, and then I think Tim and Graham did something, and then I went along. Was it last year? Yeah. It was either this year or last, last year. year. Last year. And that was just me on my own. Which, in some ways, uh, uh, from the performance point of view, if that's what it's called, I, I enjoyed most because I could mix everything, you know, and I was also showed and talked about some some of the wildlife things as well. And uh, that was... They're, they're just lovely audiences. Well, you know that. You know you're lovely. <laughs> <laughs> But talking about Edinburgh before, and, and Tim Edinburgh, 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 they did. They did the show in Edinburgh about four. Seven oh yes, years they ago, did, didn't you? They, yeah. And you were on screen. Was there no reason? Was there was there a reason why you wouldn't do that show with them? They just said you can't do it. No, it would have been probably at that stage. I was filming wildlife stuff because you know I, I there was about. 10, 12 years when I would be doing at least one series a year and when we got on to Spring Watch, Autumn Watch type gigs as well, you know, I'm probably doing a series as well as that. So it was a lot, you know, it was a lot, yeah. So I would have said, no, I didn't want to do it. Added to which I didn't want to do it at that stage and added to which I still wouldn't want to do it (laughs) in this country because I don't think it's justified in this country. If you want to go out and follow 25 million Python fans and get 10 in a village hall, then <laughs> you must be some kind of masochist. <laughs> so, no, I, don't, I, I wouldn't want to do that. No. OK. Any more questions down there? All right. Any Christmas shopping questions? <laughs>
Anything at all? Hold on. Huh? Yes. Oh. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, what, which comedians and shows do you like to watch? What do you find funny? Good question. <laughs> Definitely. Um, first, it, it's, it's so often with these things, it, the, it, it, the first thought is, what don't you like, you know, in a way? And I, I got pretty much an aversion to um, straight, what you might call straight situation comedy. It's never really appealed to me very much, you know, the hello darling I'm home sort of comedy. Um, there have been honor very honourable um, exceptions to that, obviously, you know, going back to Hancock and that, and all that. I'm not sure there's been one in recent times. I can't think of a, 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 a sitcom. The nearest you would get would have been sort of Father Ted or something like that, mm. which is, bare, you know, that's only a whisker away from the goodies, really. Mm. It's not at all dissimilar, and it's, you know, which is great. No, funny show. Maybe that's my criteria. If it doesn't remind me of us, I'm not going to work. But you could say Lars and Summer Wine was sort of a geriatric goodie. Oh, but, uh, just, I hated just, it, you say. Yeah. I hated it, but right from the start, we are geriatric. But I do like a lot of the American sitcoms. <coughs> I, I like Big Bang Theory a lot. Oh, and, um, you know, I like Girls a lot. I thought that was really good. And, you know, going right back to um, The Laughing, even, and things like that from way back. But I, t I tend to gravitate towards the American ones more, really. Even, in, even funny enough, I preferred the American version of The Office to the British one, which is heresy, isn't it? He's shot for that, I think. God knows, traitor. But I, I did enjoy the other one as well, but <laughs> still thought it good. We, uh, our era, didn't produce stand-ups at all. There weren't the clubs there, and it just wasn't what you did, you know. Um, so that's relatively recent. I don't think any of us could do it. I'm sure. Let's see. We can do. We can sit in chairs and show pictures. That's what Cleese does as well. Not here. We can't. Not here. <laughs> if only. If only they say yes. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, every, almost every time I see a stand-up, I'm like, oh, it's really good. They're really good. Really good. You know, Eddie Izzard's one of my big favourites. If I think of the gigs where I thought, wow, I've just seen something special there. First time I saw Ben Elton, I thought that. You know, when he did about three hours or something. Oh, Jesus Christ. And uh, what's his depressions like? And, uh, and, 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 um, and Eddie Izzard, the same thing. Um, you know, and all these people, Michael McIntyre, you can't help. You know, it's, uh, yeah. But there's a lot of them. They're amazing. I think they are absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. And, of course, playing totally into the hands of the money people... Because all you need is a microphone. This place probably couldn't provide it, but there you go. <laughs> We've got one. Really yeah, oh, it works as well. Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Bill Oddie. Good night. I think on that note, Mr. Bill Oddie, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at the Museum of Comedy, Bloomsbury, London. Museumofcomedy.com.